Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 20, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It's Saturday night, July 31st, and I'm in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama, also I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. Episode 20, we made it, fam. We made it to episode 20. I I can't lie. I did not think that we would get here. Making a podcast was something I've wanted to do for a little while, and I thought that I just wouldn't stick with it. Um, There are things that I have picked up along the way. Uh, I can play three chords on a guitar but no songs. Um, I can speak like grade school Spanish. Uh, there's just things that I've, I've tried to pick up that, that didn't quite stick. You know, we've all been there before. And if I'm being honest with you, I thought that this might be one of those things. But here we are, episode 20, and uh, we are going strong. We are growing this little show together. Um, I'm pumped to be at episode 20. Got a great show for you tonight. Hey, but first, I want to tell you something that happened to me this week. Because... Um, I was sitting at home, I came home from my lunch break from work, I work right around the corner, I get to come home for lunch if I feel like it, and uh, I was at home for lunch and I got a text from my eldest cousin, my cousin Ryan, I uh, love that dude, he's such a good guy, um, we chop it up all the time about Kentucky hoops, uh, we like to talk hip hop, and uh I don't get to see him that much because he lives in God's country up in Kentucky. I'm down here in Alabama. Um, but but I love my big cousin, love to hear from him. And uh, I'm sitting at home on my lunch break, and I get a text, and it says uh, it's from my cousin Ryan, right? So I open up the text message, and it says, Your aunt with J.R. Smith. And I'm like, come again? I'm I'm sorry. What my 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 aunt with with my aunt with who? And your boy scrolls down, and there is my cousin Ryan's mother, my aunt Kelly, and she's in a picture with former Cleveland Cavaliers guard and NBA champion J.R. Smith. Like I'm sorry. What? My aunt lives in uh, North Carolina. Family spread out, Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, we we everywhere. And apparently, apparently, my aunt was at a minor league baseball game 
and so was NBA champion J.R. Smith. And I guess uh, somebody told my aunt who this man was. People had noticed him and were paying attention. And when my aunt found out who it was, she just strolled right on down there and got a picture made with him. (laughs) So I'm eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because that's what I do on my lunch break when I am 31 years old. And I get a text message, your aunt with J.R. Smith. And I look down, and it is my Aunt Kelly with J.R. Smith. <laughs> and uh, I got to say, like, he, he looked like he knew what time it was. Like, he looked like he was in good health, like he was doing okay. Uh, but, yeah, that was quite a surprise to see my aunt with J.R. Smith. It reminds me of the time, you know, I, I talk all the time on this show about my Meemaw. I had a similar incident. These things happen in our family, apparently. I'm waiting on my turn. Um, one day a few years ago, I was uh, actually in class at the time. I was back in college. Class is about to start, and it is a text from my Meemaw. And I open it up to find a picture of my Meemaw and Dave Matthews. I kid you not. My Meemaw and Dave Matthews. See, uh, Meemaw lives in Tupelo, Mississippi, uh, birthplace of Elvis Presley and Tupelo Honey. And uh, Meemaw was in Starbucks getting some coffee. And she noticed that all these people were talking about this man. She didn't have a clue who he was. And so she asked somebody beside her, who is that guy? And they said, well, that's Dave Matthews from the Dave Matthews Band. And my Meemaw says, oh, is he famous? <laughs> and the person says, yeah, he's kind of a big deal. And she says, will my grandchildren recognize that name, Dave Matthews? And the person says, uh, I believe so, yes. So Meemaw just walks up to Dave Matthews and says, Hi, I've never heard of you, but could I have a picture made with you so that my grandchildren can see it? And Meemaw gets this picture made with her and Dave Matthews and uh, texts it to me. And I'm like, I I pretty much ruined the start of class for everybody because I'm just, I'm up in the classroom like, oh my gosh, my Meemaw is with Dave Matthews. Everybody, like I got people gathered around my desk, professor even was impressed. So my aunt was with J.R. Smith this weekend. Um... I don't haven't heard the details. I, I should call her and find out. I don't know if she went to the after party after the game with Jr. I don't know if they're kicking it, swap phone numbers. I don't know if they're friends or what. Uh, I wouldn't put it past her. Um, but my aunt was hanging out with Jr. Smith at a minor league baseball game in North Carolina. Uh, after my mima hung out with Dave Matthews at a Starbucks in Tupelo, Mississippi. I'm just wondering who am I gonna meet? You know, who's gonna show up here in Alabama? Um, Am I going to be at the gas station and run into David Hasselhoff on pump five? I don't know. Maybe. Am I going to walk into the Wendy's and see Regis Philbin getting a Baconator? It's possible. Am I going to go to the bowling alley and see Charles Barkley contemplating the 710 split? I don't know. But hey, if any of those things are to transpire, your boy is going to get a picture made because that's what we do in this family. I'm going to pass it around. I'm going to go up on the... Mount Rushmore of family pictures along with Meemaw and my Aunt Kelly, J.R. Smith and uh, Dave Matthews. Oddly enough, since we're on the subject, um, that picture of my Meemaw with Dave Matthews is not Meemaw's only picture on the Mount Rushmore of pictures in our family. Um, No, she has another one up there as well. Uh, In fact, it is my favorite picture of my Meemaw and it comes with a backstory, of course. And uh, since we're in the shed already, I will tell you about that backstory. Uh, I got you, my babies. 
on my refrigerator in my home, I have a picture of my Meemaw smoking a fat stogie. My Meemaw, uh, who does not drink, who does not smoke and never has uh, other than when she was like 14, but we won't we won't get there. And she's going to hear me say that part. She's going to be really upset with me. Um, you're not going to get in trouble, Meemaw. Your mama, your mama not going to be worried about that right now. She she with the Lord. Um, yeah, I might edit this part out. She's going to get on me. <laughs> uh, I have a picture on my refrigerator of my Meemaw who does not drink or smoke, smoking a fat cigar. And it is quite an epic picture. Um, many, 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 many years ago, my family was moving and uh, my grandparents came to help us get packed up. And while cleaning out the garage, we came across uh, one of those cigars that uh, fathers hand out when they're having their first boy. I mean, it wasn't a, a fancy cigar. It was years old. It wasn't really any good. Um, but we were all exhausted from working hard. It was hot. It was uh, just one of those times where you're just kind of in a delirious state anyway. And so Meemaw proceeds to unwrap it and to light it and to take a couple puffs from this cigar um, because she is hilarious and she is awesome. And uh, she's the coolest person over like 65 in the world, bar none. Um, my grandpa is a very, very close second. You know, I've told you about him too. And so we got this picture of Meemaw smoking this cigar and I, I got a hold of it one day. And so I just, everywhere I go, every every house I live in, it goes on the refrigerator. It's the only constant. Everything else gets traded out over the years, but that picture of Meemaw stays there, and when people come in my home, um, they notice it. And it never fails to start conversation. They're like, who is that smoking a cigar on your refrigerator? And I'm like, hey, that's my Meemaw. She is awesome. <laughs> uh, so a few weeks ago, I had nothing to do one night. And uh, the kids were in bed. The wife was asleep on the couch. It was reruns on the TV. Uh, I ain't have nothing to do, okay? And uh, I got the idea. I was thinking about that picture. And I, I got the idea. I had just gotten, like, some ice cream from the fridge. I saw the picture. And I was like, hey, that picture would make a dope T-shirt. Like, that would be cool. So your boy went online. And I designed a T-shirt that says, In the Shed with Wes Anderson. And then has that picture of my Meemaw smoking a cigar. And then at the bottom of the t-shirt, it says, Meemaw, we made it. Because if you have listened to the show before, you know that at the end of every episode, that's how we sign off the show. It's the last thing that I have said for all 19 episodes, and I will say it tonight. Meemaw, we made it. Uh, because I love my Meemaw, and she's awesome. And uh, so I made a t-shirt, Meemaw smoking the cigar on the t-shirt. And then I FaceTimed. My grandmother wearing that t-shirt when it came in. <laughs> this was like a week and a half ago. And uh, I started talking to her and she doesn't notice it if, at first. And then all of a sudden she just goes, what is that? <laughs> and I said, Meemaw, these are the new t-shirts for the show. Uh, I had to come up with a design. People have been requesting t-shirts. So I made a t-shirt to advertise the show. And uh, you're the star. And she just stared at me. I was like, we're, we're selling them online. Uh, Ramesh from India bought five for him and his cousins. Silence. Radio silence over FaceTime. And then, of course, I had, I had to keep it real with her. I told her it was a one-off, that I just made the one because I thought it would be funny. Uh, your boy paid $23.99 just to get a reaction out of his grandmother. Uh, that's the type of relationship that we have. 
It is an awesome picture. Uh, maybe one day those shirts will be available. Hit us up at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Let us know if we made them available, would you buy one? If we get enough interest, um, maybe I can negotiate with her, cut her in on the proceeds, and maybe we can get something like that going. But, hey, it's a fun <laughs> it's a fun T-shirt. It's a fun picture. And uh, we live in a fun family. We're a part of a fun family. Um, another thing in our family, if you have listened to this show before, you know that we have been in a very serious podcast beef with my other cousin, Brenton, who has a podcast entitled 8 Bits and Bobbles. We've gone back and forth. Um, they got Meemaw uh, to do an intro to their show, so we had Meemaw on our show to do like a whole spot. Um, I had his baby sister and his father on my show talking about how great my show is. Well, my tools, we have reached a, a, a peaceful arrangement. And here's the peaceful arrangement. We have agreed uh, that I will be a guest on a future episode of 8 Bits and Bobbles. Uh, we're going to find a topic that your boy can chop up with them. I'm going to go on their show, and in the future, I will have my cousin Brenton as a guest on this show, on In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Um, look, they do a great job. They're much more professional than we are over here. I'm just a dude in Alabama in the shed. Like, I'm a one-man show. I'm the producer. I'm the editor. There's not much editing, but I'm the editor. Um, I find the stories. I do everything here. Uh, I, I have a 40-foot extension cord that reaches out my back door, and it goes into my shed. And I'm sitting out here at 11.03 p.m. Like, it's just me, shouty. Um, but A-Bits and Bobbles, they got a real show. Like, if they don't have advertisers yet, they're doing something wrong because they have a good professional-sounding show. The content is good. Like, everything about it is good. They got a uh, funny interaction between the hosts. He's one of them, my cousin. And uh, so the deal is I'm going to be on their show. He's going to be on our show. And both of us are, are going to encourage our viewers to go look up the other show and to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, when you leave a review like that, it helps get the show in front of more listeners. It helps kind of widen the, the listenership and the audience. So uh, if you're hearing this right now, go to Apple Podcasts on your iPhone. Um, type in 8 Bits and Bobbles. Look it up. Leave it a five-star review. Listen to a couple episodes. Check it out. Um, please, please stick with us. Listen to us, too. There's room for both of us. Um, but he's going to encourage his listeners to do the same. Uh, the beef has been squashed. It's over. At the end of the day, we're a family. They got a good show. And uh, if nothing else, we have a lot of fun and we try hard over here. Um, but yeah, man, that's my family. Hanging out with J.R. Smith, Dave Matthews, smoking cigars on t-shirts, and getting into podcast beef. And, uh, you know, if you want to be a part of the family, let me know. Uh, email the show. We'll adopt you. Uh, we got room at the table for everybody. We got room for everybody. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's what I've been up to this week, making t-shirts, um, being amazed by the conundrums and the situations that my family finds ourselves in. All right, enough of that. Let's get to some comments and corrections from our last episode. Keystone 176, Hanobia 155, Townsend 70. We're up to 749 followers on Twitter. That's up over 200 more than when we last recorded a show. You can add your name to the list by following, 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 follow me, follow me, follow me, but don't lose your grip. Is that the song? Uh, follow me, follow me, follow me, but don't lose your grip. Could be the mess up. Shoot, I ain't holding nothing back. That's some Snoop Dogg right there. We're going to talk about Snoop later. Um, you can add your name to the list by following us at In The Shed 4. That's the at sign. And then the words In The Shed 4. We're at almost 900 downloads total, just a hair under 45 listeners a show, and that number is ticking up consistently. We are quickly closing in on 1,000 downloads, which for us is a big deal. 
Our audience is still growing the quickest in India and France, but we also gained listeners this week from Denmark, Poland, and Spain, so shout out to any and all of you anywhere and everywhere who are continuing to help us grow this little show together. On our last episode, we talked about the bizarre love story of the dill pickle lady and her beau on Love After Lockup. I'm happy to report that after two more episodes of the show, they are still together so far. Last episode, we talked about Jeff Bezos going to space. As it turned out, the petitions did not prevent him from returning to Earth in his, shall we say, interestingly shaped rocket. Last week, we talked about the disconnect between actor David Schwimmer and Marcel the Monkey. I made it clear that, A, I am Team Monkey all the way, and if our emails are any indication, so are you. We currently have a poll up on Twitter, so you can go to Twitter and let us know, are you Team Ross or are you Team Monkey? And on our last show, I gave an impromptu list of my favorite 10 video games of all time, Many of you were perplexed and disappointed by my inclusion of EA Sports NCAA football franchise and exclusion of games like Donkey Kong and Mario Kart. Um, But hey, I like Mario Kart, but for me, uh, sporting games are what I prefer. I grew up playing NBA. I grew up playing um, all the different football games, college and NFL. Uh, Those are my favorite games. Um, Donkey Kong would be in my top 25. Mario Kart probably in my top 12 to 15. Um, but for me, those are those are my top 10, and I stand by my list. All right, that's all the comments and corrections for this week. Let's get to some listener emails. Our first email is from Mike D. from Indiana. Mike says, I agree with the poll. Biden isn't calling the shots, but neither did Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, or any other president in our lifetime. The corporations, the lobbyists, and the party leaders call the shots, and the president's actual power is far less than perceived. Well, um, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. Um, I hear you. I know where you're coming from. I think that uh, corporations certainly direct a lot. Um, It's been reported that President Obama's entire cabinet was given to him in an email from Citibank, and uh, those types of things certainly happen. I think that the president does have the ability to call the shots at least in a general sense, um, but are they directed, are they encouraged? Does that guidance that they receive from lobbyists, from their party, from big money corporations and donors have an effect on the way that they govern? Absolutely. I think to say that it doesn't have any effect uh, would be naive at best. So I I hear you, I see where you're coming from, um, and I think that probably we're in some, some level of agreement there. Courtney from Louisiana writes, I can't believe David Schwimmer would be so mean to that poor monkey. I always thought him to be a super nice guy. Yeah, apparently David Schwimmer did not like Marcel the monkey at all. And if you missed the last episode, you can go back to episode 19 and check out that story. Uh, If you want reporting on monkeys and actors and their relationships, come to In the Shed with Wes. This is the only place you're going to find out the real on how uh, actors... And the, the animals that played their pets really got along. And so we we, uh, we broke that down on our last episode. Um, I always thought David Schwimmer was a nice guy, too. He gives off that nice guy vibe. Maybe a lot of it is us um, kind of superimposing the character of Ross and his tendencies and traits onto David Schwimmer. Um, but apparently, at least when it comes to the issue of this monkey actor, uh, he was not so nice. Alan from the UK writes, Wes just discovered the show at episode 17. 
I've never heard of another show that talks politics, sports, and the paranormal, and I'm really enjoying it. Hey, thank you, Alan. We appreciate you listening all the way from across the pond in the UK. Um, do you listen to us during tea time? Do you have crumpets? Uh, I don't know what a crumpet is. I assume it's some type of bread, maybe like a biscuit. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not sure, but I appreciate you uh, patronizing this podcast and listening to us. Um, yeah, we try to do something different. Uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted to be on this show, what I wanted it to look like, I knew I wanted to do a couple of segments. I knew I wanted it to be long-form entertainment. Um, I didn't really want to do another interview show where every episode was nothing but interviewing someone. There's a lot of successful shows out there like that. And uh, things that I'm interested in are politics, sports, and paranormal. So I thought, hey, why not just do something entirely different and cover all three? So uh, at the heart of things, we are a news show. We cover the hard news like Ross and Marcel's relationship. Um, But yeah, we, we do things differently here. We talk about politics. We talk about sports. We talk about the paranormal news. We chop it up. And uh, I'm super glad that you are enjoying it, Alan. And finally, Kelly from Canada writes, The story about the CIA simulating alien abductions was very interesting. I've also heard that Nazi scientists experimented on children and used alien archetypes to cover up their crimes. Huh. I haven't exactly heard that. I have not read anything about that. I appreciate you sharing that with us all the way from Canada. Um, So thank you to you, Kelly. Uh, I remember seeing something hinted, uh, something similar hinted on uh, the History Channel show Project Blue Book, which is now looking for a new home. I don't think they renewed it, uh, which is really too bad. It was a fantastic show. I really enjoyed the first couple seasons. Um, They hinted at something similar to that. I've never actually read a news clipping or a story or even a blog post about that. So, uh, Kelly, if you have something like that, send it our way. We'd love to include it on the show because that does sound interesting. That's all the listener emails this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics, and let's hit the headlines. White House works with big tech to censor political opposition, writes One America News. U.S. condemns Beijing's harsh treatment of reporters covering floods in central China, says the Epoch Times. From the Hill, Biden hits resistance from unions on vaccine requirement. Representative Madison Cawthorn tried to board plane with loaded gun and could face fine, writes USA Today. And finally, calls grow for Biden to close Guantanamo military prison as U.S. sanctions Cuba over human rights violations And that is according to Democracy Now. Our first story in the world of politics, South Dakota AG claims his crash victim wanted to die. South Dakota Attorney General Jason Ravensborg is claiming the man he ran over and killed, allegedly while scrolling through his phone while driving down the highway at night, wanted to die. In court documents filed Friday, the state's top lawman claimed victim Joe Beaver was depressed and suicidal, and may have thrown himself in front of his car as he drove home from a Republican function on September 12th. Ravensborg's lawyer, Timothy J. Wrench, which just so happens to rhyme with Grinch, is seeking a court order that would force health care providers to release Beaver's psychiatric or psychological records for exculpatory information concerning his suicidal ideation. The filing quotes Beaver's cousin, Barnabas Nimick, as saying Beaver was an admitted alcoholic with a brooding depressive streak unparalleled by anyone else he had ever known. 
Nimick said that in December 2019, Beaver told him if he did kill himself, he would do so by being struck by a vehicle. I believe with a very high degree of confidence that Joe committed suicide by throwing himself into the path of a speeding car, Nimick is quoted as saying. However, both of Nimick's brothers, Nick and Victor, dispute that claim. They told the Daily Beast that while Beaver had suffered low periods before, he did not seem depressed at the time of his death. Victor Nimick gave Beaver a ride after Beaver's pickup truck drove off Highway 14 a few hours before the fatal crash and said he showed no sign of drinking. Victor said he doesn't know why Beaver, who worked for him and become a close friend, drove off the road and struck a large round hay bale. He may have been reaching for a cigarette paper, Victor said. Victor said he looked around Beaver's home that night after dropping him off and again on the following day and found no alcohol present in the residence. Nick Nimick, meanwhile, said he wonders how Barnabas Nimick would know so much about Beaver's mental state. Barnabas lives in suburban Detroit, Michigan, Nick said. I don't know how he would have been able to observe anything to make any judgment call whatsoever. He said he called Barnabas after Ravensborg's filing, and Barnabas confirmed making those comments in an email to Hyde County State Attorney Emily Sovel, who is prosecuting the case. So, the cousin that lives in Detroit, Michigan, claims that this man, his cousin, was suicidal and had told him, if I were to commit suicide, I would do so by throwing myself in front of a car. But the two cousins that actually live in South Dakota, who around this man say he was not suicidal at the time, he was not drinking at the time, and we do not believe that this is a true statement. How in the world could Cousin Barnabas come up with such a story? Why in the world would Cousin Barnabas come up with such a story? Might it be that he got a phone call from one Jason Ravensborg or someone representing Jason Ravensborg? Maybe Mr. Barnabas's bank records need to be checked. Because if I am a prosecutor who is handling this case, that is certainly something that I am going to do. I'm going to find out if this man has received any money other than from his job in the last several months before this filing occurred. At the time of his death, Beaver was going through a rough patch having separated from his wife. According to the new court filing, he had sought assistance for mental issues and was using lorazepam, an anti-anxiety medicine. A bottle was found in his pickup with just 12 pills in it. It had been filled with an order of 90 pills just a day earlier. Beaver's autopsy revealed that there was much more lorazepam in his system than a therapeutic dose. This could have caused suicidal urges, the document states. Ravensborg is seeking medical records from a host of medical facilities, including the South Dakota Human Services Center in Yankton, where Beaver had been committed prior to his death, according to the court document. Ravensborg has been charged with three misdemeanors and faces a maximum of 30 days in jail and a $500 fine for each if convicted at a trial that is scheduled to start August 26th. According to authorities, he was using his cell phone seconds before the crash and struck Beaver as the 55-year-old Highmore man walked alongside the shoulder of the road. Investigators who interviewed Ravensborg noted that Beaver's face came through the windshield and his glasses were found inside Ravensborg's car. In his filing, Ravensborg suggested a different crash scenario. I bet he did. The evidence on the roadway and shoulder as examined by law enforcement the day after the death of Mr. Beaver was different than it was the night before, as there was wind, continued vehicle travel, and movement of the Ravensborg vehicle by law enforcement in the interim. Nonetheless, a bolt remained on the roadway while paint chips were blown to the grass on the edge of the shoulder, it states. 
This is consistent with impact between the Ravensburg vehicle and Mr. Beaver on the roadway rather than the shoulder. Nick Nemec, a former state legislator who has personally investigated the case and served as a family spokesperson, is convinced that Beaver was not suicidal. Joe was on the shoulder of the road, he said. So that, I would think, would indicate that he wasn't out trying to jump in front of the car. Ravensburg defied a call from Governor Christy Nome, a fellow Republican, to resign, and impeachment hearings, the first in state history, were launched this spring, but then stopped until the criminal trial could be completed. So, we have been on this story since it first happened, since it first came out. This is like our third or fourth time covering this. We will stick with it until completion of the trial. And hopefully until Jason Ravensborg uh, is convicted and spends some time in jail and is fined. Um, chances are with three misdemeanors, even if he's guilty, he's not actually going to get a jail sentence. But maybe we can at least get this man out of office. Um, because you can't be the AG of a state and be out here driving negligently and killing someone and face absolutely no repercussion or accountability. And that is unquestionably what is happening in this case so far we keep it a buck with you here on in the shed um i don't care if you're a republican if you're a democrat if you're conservative if you're liberal uh i just want you to be a true public servant i just want you to be a person of your word i just want you to care more about the betterment of our society than your own job security or bank account and um in this case jason ravensborg is emptying his his barrel in an attempt to hold on to his job. And it's wrong. It's wrong. The man was on a, a state highway late at night. It was dark. He's on his way home. His phone records show that he was on his phone reading a news article. Like, police have determined that. Investigators have determined the man was on his phone reading while he was driving. It's also been proven that Joe Beaver's vehicle was on the side of the road. So you have a distracted driver. You have somebody who's walking from their vehicle, presumably to try and find help. It's clear that Mr. Ravensborg hit Mr. Beaver with his truck. And Mr. Beaver's face was actually in the windshield. His head came through the windshield because the glasses that were on his face wound up and were found inside Mr. Ravensborg's car. All right, his glasses were found inside his car. Jason Ravensborg uh, hits a man and kills him with his vehicle, gets out, claims to not find the body, claims to not see anything, calls 911, says, I believe I hit a deer, I don't see anything. And of course, when you make a call like that, they say, okay, well, if you don't see anything, you don't, you know, you hit a deer, are you okay? All right, go home, whatever. The next day, Jason Ravensborg and the local police. Now, this is the, the top cop of the state. And the local police go back to the scene of where he hit some something and start to search the scene. Um, Jason Ravensborg should not be searching the scene, first of all. But he does. He searches the scene with the local police. And guess who happens to stumble across the body of Mr. Joe Beaver? None other than Jason Ravensborg. The same guy who claims to have thought that he hit a deer who claims that he never saw the man, even though the man's head came through his windshield and his glasses wound up inside Jason Ravensborg's truck. And he's the one to find the dead man's body. He's the one 
to actually stumble across, oh no, I found a body. It looks like someone has hit this man. It could have been me. Oh no, I thought I hit a deer. Give me a break. Give me a break. So the story seems unlikely, and there's a lot of lines being crossed here that shouldn't be, um, even if it was just a terrible accident, okay? Even if Jason Ravensborg was distracted on his phone, was close to the shoulder, this man was walking on the shoulder, um, he hit him, he didn't see him because it happened so fast, even if all of that is true, you were driving your car on your cell phone, distracted, you hit someone and killed them, it's time for you to face the music. It's time for you to own up to what you've done, to admit that it's wrong. But does Jason Ravensborg do that? No. What does he do? He refuses to resign his elected position as the top cop of the state. And now, now he's going to drag the dead man's name through the mud. He's going to bring out uh, all of this man's past mental health issues and struggle. And he's going to put it on the table in front of the world. And he's going to uh, get testimony from this man's cousin that doesn't even live in the same state or anywhere close, by the way. And he's going to try to make the case that this man probably threw himself onto the road in front of me while I was distracted on my phone and driving. And I just so happened to hit him because really he wanted to die. And I didn't know about it, and I, I didn't realize it was a person, and I, I didn't see anything when I got out of my truck, and then the next day I just so happened to be the one to find him. First of all, I'm not buying your story, Ravensborg. I think that you're a criminal. I think that you are morally despicable. And one thing that we don't do on this show very often, if you have listened to most of these shows so far, one thing that we don't do very often is I don't call into question the character of politicians, even if I disagree with their policy. Because the truth is, I don't know these people, and you don't either. And who are we to sit back from afar and cast aspersions on their character? I don't do that for ratings. I'm not bombastic, I'm not over the top, just so more people will click download. I don't play that game. But in this situation, the actions of Jason Ravensborg are despicable. I find them morally reprehensible. That rather than say, I made a terrible mistake. I was on my phone. I was distracted. Despite his mental health, despite his past, despite his situation, I took somebody's life because of my poor choices. And I need to own up to that. So I'm going to apologize. I'm going to make it right with his family. I'm going to face the music. I'm going to resign my position. I'm going to rebuild myself as a man of character. I'm going to do what I have to to make it right. Instead of that, there is some very possible lying, some very possible cover-up happening. And to top it all off, he's going to drag the dead man's name through the mud. He's going to make him look as bad as possible, as unstable as possible. And hey, the truth is, I don't care if Joe Beaver was mentally unstable. I don't care if there was more of this drug in his system than there should have been. I don't care if he was going through a hard time because he was separated from his wife. The facts of the case show that you were on your cell phone, that you were driving distractedly, that you hit a man and killed him, that his face went through your windshield, that you somehow didn't see him, that you somehow didn't see him when you got out of the car, but that you were somehow able to find him the next day. 
not the local sheriff, not a deputy, but you. So despite whatever else may come out in this case or what Jason Ravensborg digs up about Joe Beaver, I think that the people of South Dakota and the American people deserve better. Better from our elected officials, better than Jason Ravensborg. I wish this man was being charged with a felony, but I hope he gets found guilty of all three misdemeanors. And I hope that they give him the maximum sentence that they can. I hope he serves some type of jail time. I hope he has fines. I hope there's a civil case. I hope he gets removed from office. Because this isn't what you do when you make a mistake. This isn't what integrity looks like. And we're going to keep covering it. We're not going to let up. I haven't seen a single report on Fox News, on CNN, on MSNBC about this. But there should be because it's a big deal. When an elected official takes the life of an American citizen because of their poor choices, it matters. Joe Beaver was someone who had a family, someone who was made in the image of God, someone who, despite his mental health issues and struggles, had inerrant value as a person. And his life was snuffed out because of the decision-making of the Attorney General of South Dakota. And I hope that he has to face the music for that decision-making. Our next story in the world of politics, the FBI allegedly used at least 12 informants in the Michigan kidnapping case. Defense attorneys said they will argue that the FBI induced or persuaded the defendants to go along with the violent scheme. The government employed at least a dozen confidential informants to infiltrate groups of armed extremists who allegedly plotted to kidnap the governor of Michigan, according to a new filing in federal court on Monday. The filing made by one of the five defendants in the federal case asked that prosecutors be ordered to share more information about those informants, their relationship with the FBI, and the specific roles they played in building the case. It came among a blizzard of 15 new defense motions in the high-profile case, including a request to move it to a different district to suppress evidence from a search warrant and to try at least one defendant separately from the others. Taken together, the new court papers offered a glimpse of the evolving defense strategy in the case, with several attorneys saying that they planned to argue that the FBI induced or persuaded the men to go along with the scheme. The alleged plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer made international headlines last October when the Department of Justice announced it had charged six men in a kidnapping conspiracy. Five of the defendants, Barry Croft, Adam Fox, Daniel Harris, Caleb Franks, and Brandon Caserta, have all pled not guilty and have been held without bail since their arrests. A sixth, Ty Garbin, pled guilty and agreed to cooperate in the case in January. According to the Justice Department, the men met and trained over a six-month period in 2020 during which time they developed a plan to kidnap Whitmer from her second home and possibly take her out of state where she could be put on trial for being a tyrant. No plan was ever executed before authorities made arrests. Eight other men were charged under Michigan's anti-terrorism statutes for providing material support to the plotters. Half of the defendants in the combined cases were members of a militant group known as the Wolverine Watchmen, which was associated with the Three Percenters extremist movement. All but two are from the state of Michigan. A trial in the federal case is currently scheduled for October. Monday marked a filing deadline for defense motions in the case. Although prosecutors have acknowledged using informants to build the case, the court file to date has provided very little detail on their activities or identities, save for one informant who testified in March. 
According to an attorney for Franks, the government has shared ID numbers linked to 12 confidential informants, but with one exception has not provided background on how they were recruited, what payment they may have received from the FBI, where they're based, or what their names are. Such information would be crucial to preparation of a defense to the charges Franks' lawyer Scott Graham claimed. Franks, meanwhile, asked that the case be moved out of the Western District of Michigan on the grounds that press coverage of and participation in this matter have corrupted the potential trial atmosphere to the point that Mr. Franks will be denied a fair trial in Michigan. Graham specifically cited a motion filed by BuzzFeed News to obtain access to exhibits shown in a hearing in the case in January as an example of the media involvement in the case and the risk of prejudice in this case based on the extensive, negative, pervasive press coverage of the allegations made. Franks also asked to be tried separately because he is not facing a bomb charge that was added to the case earlier this year. That count, conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, applies to three of the other defendants who are alleged to have tried to build explosive devices or procure bomb-making materials. According to an attorney, potential allegations by prosecutors in court about that charge will certainly go far in frightening jurors and eliciting emotional decisions from them. And yet another motion filed late on Sunday, an attorney for Croft claimed that prosecutors had provided more than 5,000 duplicate files as it shared evidence, including no fewer than 15 copies of the same audio recording, significantly increasing the burden on the defense. Separately, the attorney, Joshua Blanchard, asked the court to exclude from evidence some items that were recovered from Croft's Delaware residence during an FBI search in October because he claims they were outside the scope of the warrant. Among those items were a one-kilogram silver bar, a handwritten code cipher, and Mr. Croft's hat. Croft, a long-haul truck driver and father of three girls, is known among three percenters for often wearing a tricorn hat like those from the time of the American Revolution. So, I don't know if you remember this story back when it first hit the news. It was all over every news station. And it was pretty wild that the governor of Michigan in the middle of this pandemic, that there had been a plot to kidnap her. Um, These militant extremists who um, were fed up with the restrictions and the lockdown guidelines and all of the things that she had put in place because of coronavirus. They were sick of it. They had labeled her a tyrant, and they had made a plan to kidnap her and to take her to an undisclosed location where she could be put on trial by who I am not sure for being a tyrant. It was all over the news. And it seemed uh, not only terrifying and alarming, but it seemed like an open and shut case and... It seemed like something in which the FBI had stopped something from happening that would have been tragic. Because no matter what your view about Mrs. Whitmer, I hope that we can all agree she does not deserve to be kidnapped. And if we cannot agree, um, A, you and I are on two different planes. And um, I don't know what to tell you. So this story was quite alarming and quite a big deal. And now... Now you have to at least wonder what was really going on in this case and in this situation. Because the article that I have just shared with you and reporting that has been done about this comes to us from BuzzFeed News. And if you're not aware, BuzzFeed News is not a right-leaning news organization. Uh, When you look at the spectrum of where they fall, uh, they they slant to the left, okay? Um, I'm not getting this from like Breitbart 
or InfoWars or somewhere that's far right. This is a left-leaning news organization. And BuzzFeed News broke the story that for these five men to be arrested and charged with conspiracy and uh, attempted kidnapping and even terroristic-type activity, these men that have been labeled terrorists and are being held without bail, that in order for that to happen and these arrests to be made, as many as, or at least, 12 FBI informants were involved. Granted, we don't know what level they were involved in yet, but things that have come out suggest that these FBI informants provided the money to pay for hotel rooms and for food when these groups and these people met up for training events, that they provided the tactical training and the supplies necessary, that they encouraged these folks to recruit other people and bring them into the fold, and that when there was some uncertainty expressed, um, they fit the bill so that these folks would come and meet together and get trained. And if nothing else, if we're being honest, it's enough to make you go, hmm. It's enough to make you wonder if this defense by these attorneys is going to have some legs. And if it's actually going to be a defense that is effective in front of a jury trial. Because this would not be the first time. This may be news to you, my tools. But this would not be the first time that a quote-unquote domestic terror event was stopped and was prevented only for us to later learn that the very ones preventing it were also the ones that had planned it, recruited the people to put it on, and then arrested those people for thinking about doing the thing that they planned and recruited them to do. Now look, is it likely that these men did not like Gretchen Whitmer? Yes. Is it likely that these were shady characters that were involved in things and that were a part of a group that most of us would find despicable? Yeah, it's likely. But did they have any plans, any means, any ability to do such a thing without FBI encouragement, recruitment, or assistance? Because, hey, if these people are out here planning to kidnap a governor, throw them in jail and get rid of the key. These are not people that we can have as a part of our society. But, but, if these were just some angry people that would meet together and have some beers and talk about how much they love guns and how much they hate the government, and some FBI informants became a part of the group also, and hatched and developed a plan, and paid for it, and provided the training, and recruited the people, and assigned them their roles, but then arrested them before it happened, I don't know if I'm down with that. I don't know if that is preventative policing or if that is something that should never occur in a free society. Because that sounds a little bit like entrapment to me. And uh, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. You think I'm making this up? Do some, do some homework. Do some research, my tools. There's another incident in which uh, there was a plan... If I remember right, I want to say this was in New York. It might have been Chicago, but I think it was New York. There was a plan to, to put a bomb on the subway. And uh, I remember hearing about this. It was a big deal when the guy got arrested. There was a um, young Muslim man that was going to put a bomb 
on the subway and detonated. The bomb did not go off, no one was harmed or injured, but the man was arrested on terrorism charges and he's going to spend the rest of his days behind bars. Only to find out that this guy was just a regular dude until a government intelligence agent befriended him, radicalized him, planned this event with him, gave him the bomb, convinced him to go into this place and hit this button that would cause it to explode. The man didn't even want it. He said he had to ask his mama that he wasn't so sure. And they said, hey, look, you don't even have to do, you just hit this button right here. The bomb wasn't even real. We made the bomb. It wasn't even real. They radicalized this young man, convinced him to do this thing, gave him the button to press, and then when he pressed the button, they swooped in, they arrested him, they labeled him a terrorist, they threw him in a cell, and then they put out the news headlines that said that they had done something worthy of praise. What's the point of doing something like that? Does it actually make us any safer? If this young man had no intention, if he wasn't radicalized before dealing with an informant, if this group of these five guys in Michigan um, had no plans to do anything violent, if they had no organization, if they had no means, if they had no training, if there was no plan outside of government informants, people who had infiltrated this group, if, 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 if that is the case, does that actually make us any safer? What is the purpose? What is the point? The point is money. The point is headlines. Because, hey, if, if your group, if your organization is shutting down domestic terror plots, guess what happens? Your budget gets an increase. Your paycheck gets bigger. You get raises. You get promotions. You get the accolades. You get the good intentions. You get more leeway. You get the benefit of the doubt in the future because people look at what you have done and they go, hey, maybe I should hand over some more control to this group because they're keeping me safe. I know some of you are hearing me say these things and you're thinking I've gone off the deep end. I sound like a conspiracy theorist. I'm not saying these men are innocent. I'm saying we need to look closely at what the circumstances were around this crime because when five people are arrested and charged... And it took 12 government informants and agents undercover to make that happen. It raises some eyebrows. And if the FBI are the ones to hatch the plan, and if they're the ones to foot the bill, it raises some eyebrows. So interesting story there from BuzzFeed News. We're going to keep watching. We're going to see what happens in this trial. Um, What do you think? Are these guys guilty? Would they have hatched this plan on their own anyway? Or is this the FBI overstepping their bounds? Get at us on Twitter. Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com and let us know. I'm not making a definitive claim. I don't know what happened in this case. I'm just saying the optics are not good. The optics are not good for the FBI, for intelligence, for our government. If Governor Whitmer was in danger, I sure hope that they get these guys convicted, that they put them in jail. If they had no plan other than what the government gave them, it's a whole different ballgame. So we'll see. Time will tell. Uh, We will know more as things progress as we head to this trial. Our next story, critics unload on Biden for awkward stumbles at CNN Town Hall. 
President Joe Biden stumbled and mumbled through some questions at his CNN town hall Wednesday night, prompting raised eyebrows from journalists and mockery from critics. President Biden has said not a joke at least seven times over the past 30 minutes. Not a joke, literally, tweeted Washington Post White House reporter Matt Viser. CBS News Digital White House reporter Catherine Watson tweeted of a possible drinking game for those who, unlike me, aren't working. Every time President Biden says, all kidding aside, I'm not joking, I'm being serious, I'm not being facetious, take a drink. Repetitions aside, Twitter users also hit Biden for a painful clip in which he struggled to answer a question from the moderator, Don Lemon, about when children under the age of 12 will be able to get vaccinated. Crushing it, tweeted Tom Elliott, founder of the news clip source Gravian, along with a video of Biden's ambling and nonsensical answer. I don't know about you, but I am thrilled this guy's in charge of the free world. We should all sleep sound at night, posted Donald Trump Jr. in a tweet with a flushed face emoji. He continued, hey, at least there's no mean tweets, mostly because this guy wouldn't be capable of a tweet or even a complete thought on his own anyway. Joe Biden struggles to keep his thoughts straight when talking about vaccines, posted the Republican National Committee's RNC Research Twitter account. Journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted, Is there really anyone willing to step forward with a straight face and say that there's nothing wrong here? Is this for real? tweeted House Republican Conference Chair Rep. Elise Stefanik from New York with a thinking face emoji. And the media will continue to fawn and look the other way. The criticism of Biden's stumbles wasn't limited to Twitter. Just hearing Biden unable to put a thought together. I think everyone in the country should be really, really scared, said former Trump administration official Brooke Rollins on Fox News at night. So I don't know if you saw the town hall that Joe Biden, president of the United States, did with CNN and host Don Lemon. <sighs> Look, we, we talked about this on our very last episode, episode 19. And... The truth is that both the left and the right are a bit disingenuous and not wholly honest or fair when it comes to the topic of whether or not Joe Biden is mentally astute and capable of leading the free world. Because the far right will tell you that this man is suffering from dementia, that he doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know what day of the week it is, and that's not really fair. Most of us aren't doctors, and even if you are, you probably are not the doctor that has done the cognitive testing on President Joe Biden. So to make a diagnosis like that is not fair, um, it's not kind, and it's probably not very accurate either. However, however, the far left has not been wholly honest or fair in this regard either because they tell us that this man is a gaff machine they blame his stutter uh, and they largely ignore things like what I am about to show you here on in the shed I don't tell you what to think I just give you the story I let you make your own decisions draw your own conclusions um, I'm not pushing an agenda I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. Um, I'm too conservative for my liberal friends. I'm too liberal for my conservative friends. I believe we need both the left wing and the right wing for this bald eagle to soar. But this town hall did not go well. It did not go well. And 
I'm about to show you a couple of answers that the president gave on national television. And then I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions. This is Joe Biden. Are you, are you okay? I mean, you seem, no, it works. Or, you, you know, or, 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 or the mom and dad. Or, 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 or the neighbor. Or when you go to church. Or when you're, no, no I, I, I really mean it. There are trusted interlocutors. Think of the people. If, if your kid wanted to find out whether or not there were, there's a man on the moon or whatever, you know, something, or, you know, whether those aliens are here or not, you know, who are the people they talk to beyond the kids who love talking about it? I don't know what the man is talking about. And in case you think that I'm just cherry picking one clip where he gave an answer that wasn't really a great answer, I went back and watched the whole darn thing. And this wasn't the only example. I don't know if any children have trusted interlockers. I know children who are pushed into lockers. I don't know what a trusted interlocker is. I don't know what he's talking about with the man on the moon. But this isn't an example of a stutter. Okay. Yes, when he did the or, 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 maybe that was the stutter. This is an inability to answer a question off script and off of teleprompter without having somebody tell him what to say. This is an inability to put together a good answer to this question, which is an important question that Don Lemon asked. Now, I'm not here to tell you this because the man has dementia. I don't think that that's fair. I don't know that that's true. But we also can't ignore it. It is alarming. It does make you go, what just happened right there? And it wasn't the only time that that happened in the town hall. Check out this next clip. Or why can't the, the, the experts say, we know that this virus is in fact, uh, um, uh, is, is, is going to be, uh, or excuse me, we, we, we know why all the drugs approved are not temporarily approved, but permanently approved. Yeah. <sighs> Look, I, I honestly don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. Might it be possible that Joe Biden, um, that going off script is just not his forte, that it's just not his strength, that he needs to be very well prepared, that he needs to be on a short leash? Is that a possibility? Sure. Sure. But hey, we got to cover this man fairly, and we got to be honest with the people. This is the President of the United States of America. If this were Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George Bush, or Bill Clinton, and he gave a performance like this, any of those men gave a performance like this on national television, would it be glossed over? Would it be written off? Would it be ignored? I don't think so. I, I, I just honestly don't think so. This is not just a stutter. This was a really, really poor performance in a very pivotal and important moment in our country, and a very pivotal and important moment in our battle against the coronavirus and this pandemic that has engulfed our society. And we have the President of the United States on national TV sounding like that. And we have one wing of our media that is saying it's because he belongs in a nursing home and is incapacitated, and another wing of our media that ignores it completely. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. And we need to be honest. We need to ask tough questions. 
we need to be honest about the fact that it was a poor performance. And hey, maybe that's all it was. I hope that's all it was. This man is is the leader of the free world. I hope that it was just a very poor performance. And I hope that as time goes on that his presidency bears that out. But above all else, the news media is supposed to be the watchdog of our politicians. And they need to be fair in the way that they cover the president of the United States. I said the same thing when Trump was in office, when he did some things that were reprehensible. I called him out on it when he did things that were good, which he did do some things that were good. I said that the news media should be covering those things as well. We try to be fair on this show. We're going to keep it a buck with you. We're going to tell you the positives and the negatives no matter who is in office. And one negative right now is that these moments in time in the Joe Biden presidency are not being covered fairly or openly or honestly by any news media that I can find hardly. I did see reports from news media from other countries that were not glowing. This spoke in terms of disaster. Um, that talked about uh, an alarming performance by Joe Biden. And certainly when I watch those clips, I, I don't understand what's happening, what's going on, what point he's trying to make. He certainly lost his place, struggled to form a thought. And, and I'm not saying that it's because he has some debilitating medical condition because I'm not a doctor and we shouldn't go there unless we know. But we also can't afford to ignore it and pretend and act as though that this is the most astute person and that there's nothing to see here and that his inability to answer those questions is simply because the man has a stutter. Watch him give a speech when he was vice president. Watch him in interviews or debates. Go back. This is my challenge to you. If you think this is just this man's stutter, go back and watch Joe Biden in the vice presidential debate against Paul Ryan and see how he wiped the floor with Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, who's pretty well-spoken. Joe Biden isn't as sharp as he once was. And it could be normal. That happens with age. It's something that happens as we get older. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's not able or capable of being president. But we got to be honest about where we are. We got to ask tough questions. We got to hold our president no matter what party they're from, ours or the other. We got to hold them to a high standard. And we got to cover them honestly. And that's what we do on In the Shed with Wes. And that's what we're going to keep on doing. Our last story in the world of politics, Florida man. I could really stop there, couldn't I? <laughs> it's one of those things, I, I don't even really have to finish that sentence. I don't have to read the rest of the headline. You know what's coming. You know that it's going to be gold, trailer park gold. You know what's coming next is going to be something that is beyond understanding. But I digress. Florida man tries to throw live gator onto a beachside roof. A Florida man was arrested Friday for trying to throw a live alligator onto a roof of a beachside cocktail lounge in Daytona Beach Shores. Police say a 32-year-old man, William Bubba Hodge, yeah, of course he's a Bubba. Why wouldn't he be a Bubba? William Bubba Hodge told officers that he stole the alligator from its pen at a, mini at a miniature golf course and was teaching it a lesson. Um, so many questions. So many, qu so many questions. Why does this miniature golf place have a live alligator, first of all? Uh, that, that does not seem necessary when it comes to the sport of miniature golf. Um, secondarily, why in the world did Bubba feel the need to teach this alligator a lesson? 
what did this gator do to him? Is this a Happy Gilmore situation? And maybe it took the hand of his mentor that was teaching him the ways of mini-golf. We will probably never know. The officer said that they watched Hodge take the alligator by its tail, hit it against a building, throw it on the ground, and stomp on it twice. What are you doing? What are you doing, police? Officer said they watched the man take it by its tail, hit it against a building, throw it on the ground, and stomp on it twice. I feel like you should have reacted a little bit quicker. Like, what do you have against this alligator's police that you're going to allow this man to do all this before you go over there and talk to him? I feel like if you are doing your job, as soon as you notice a man with a live alligator in his clutches, you should probably respond right then and there. You probably should not sit in your car and say, hmm, what will happen next? Oh, he smacked it against the building. Oh, he threw it on the ground. Oh, he stomped on it once. Oh, he stomped on it twice. Now we're going to go arrest him. You need, to do a be- you need to do a better job protecting that alligator. According to police, Hodge is being charged with possession and injury of an alligator, burglary, theft, and criminal mischief. The alligator has been returned to the management of Canogo River Golf. And that is where I want to go. If I am ever in the Daytona Beach area, I will go to Canogo River Golf and I will see this alligator that Bubba has stolen. I feel like maybe the police should be charged with injuring the alligator. Those officers watch this man pick the alligator up, slam it to a building, throw it on the ground, step on it, stomp on it twice. Um, yeah, he he's the one that injured the alligator, but hey, you are definitely complicit. You're definitely complicit. And uh, I just got to say that this guy, uh, 32-year-old Bubba Hodge, looks exactly like what you think he looks like. Like The image that you have in your head, the thing that you are picturing right now, my tools. That is, in fact, exactly what this man looks like. And uh, I don't have the, the results of the test, but I guarantee you this man is iced out, and I am not talking about bling. What this man was up to this night is what my wife and I refer to as cracktivities. Cracktivities. Florida man gets arrested for throwing a live alligator onto... A rook. He just wanted to teach it a lesson. And now he is the one that will be learning a lesson. That's all for the world of politics. Let's switch to this, the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Minnesota Vikings quarterback Kellen Mond tests positive for the coronavirus. Browns and running back Nick Chubb agree to three-year, $36 million extension. The New Orleans Saints reach a one-year deal with running back Freeman. The Boston Celtics acquire Josh Richardson for Tristan Thompson. Bucks forward Bobby Big Eyes Portis declines option and will become an unrestricted free agent. The Lakers acquire Russell Westbrook in a trade for Harold Kuzma and Caldwell Pope. John Shire lands first recruit at Duke and top 20 senior Kyle Flipowski. And Alabama quarterback Bryce Young has signed over $800,000 in NIL deals. The Chicago Cubs have traded Captain Anthony Rizzo, and you know what that means. Absolutely nothing. We do not talk baseball on In the Shed with Wes. Let's get to some real sports, and let's start with the NBA. Let's talk NBA Finals. The Bucks have won the NBA championship, winning the NBA Finals series over the Phoenix Suns. Four games to two. Uh, the last time we talked, it was tied two to two. 
Uh, I really was hoping and meaning to get back to you sooner than the end of this series, but alas, life happens. Uh, if you remember, we picked the Suns to win in six, and when we last spoke, it was tied 2-2, two to two, and I fully believed that that would still happen. As it turns out, Giannis had different plans. Uh, the man was unstoppable. Giannis Antetokounmpo had an all-time great final series because he did what I have been on him to do um, for years, and that's to, to lean into his strengths, to stop allowing teams to make him into a jump shooter, but to play in the post, to set hard picks and roll to the basket, to get out in transition, um, to take people down into the block, to catch lobs, to punish people, to use his size and his athleticism to be the dominant force that he can be. And in this series, uh, he, f- he started finding a way to do that, and he imposed his will on the Phoenix Suns, and he dominated them. That domination was especially on display in Game 6, the decisive game of the series, when Giannis scored 50 points and had 14 rebounds. And the most impressive part of all in this game uh, was that he was 17 of 18 from the free throw line. Giannis, who struggled to even shoot free throws in 10 seconds or less all playoffs, um, when it came to the decisive game of the NBA Finals, the man was 17 for 18 at the line. He scored 50 points. He was clearly the best player in the series, uh, winning Finals MVP, and he was the best player on the floor in Game 6 by far. By far. It wasn't even close. Um, the thing is, the second best player on the floor was probably Chris Middleton. Uh, Devin Booker just was never the same after breaking his nose. Um, Chris Paul, he had a great year. He made a huge difference for this team, but was not enough to push the Suns over the edge. I thought coming into this series that the Suns were the better team. I stuck with them the whole way, um, but the Bucks had other plans. They win the NBA championship. Um, not a lot of people would have seen that coming at the beginning of the year. Uh, for it to be the Bucks and the Suns in the finals was a surprise in and of itself. But for Giannis to raise the trophy and for the Bucks to get over the hump, um, Giannis, who is not a part of a super team, Giannis, who re-signed with Milwaukee, who wanted to stay um, the face of a small market team and do things organically, uh, Coach Bud, who gets made fun of and who gets uh, run out of town for his um, lack of ability in making adjustments, is now an NBA champion coach. And Giannis is an N- NBA champion finals MVP. And the Bucks deserved it. They were the better team. They proved me wrong. They proved a lot of people wrong. And uh, kudos to them. It's going to be interesting to see what they do in the offseason. They really want to re-sign Bobby Portis, although he probably earned a payday. They're probably going to lose key reserves like Bobby Portis and Pat Connaughton that have made a big difference for them down the stretch uh, in the offseason. They'll get back Dante DiVincenzo from injury. Uh, But it's going to be interesting to see what they do moving forward, what adjustments they make in their attempt to repeat. Most of our predictions for the playoffs in the NBA were correct. We were uh, far above average in our predictions on In The Shed, but we were wrong when it comes to our NBA Finals prediction. And honestly, I'll say I'm I'm glad to see Giannis win. I'm happy for the man. Like, the man does things the right way. Um, His story is remarkable, and the way that he's improved from the time he came into the NBA till now is hard to fathom. He's put the work in. Um, He's done it the right way. He's done it the hard way. No easy fixes, no overnight anything. Um, He's a superstar. He has an opportunity to be the most dominant player in the league for the next five years. And now he is an NBA champion.
In addition to the NBA Finals, we also have just completed the NBA Draft a couple of nights ago. Uh, the top 10 looks like this. A number one overall pick was Cade Cunningham to the Pistons. The Rockets took Jalen Green with the second pick. Evan Mobley went third to the Cavs. Scotty Barnes fourth to the Raptors. Jalen Suggs was the fifth overall pick to Orlando. Josh Giddy was picked sixth by the Thunder. Jonathan Kaminga went seventh to the Warriors. Franz Wagner was eighth to the Magic. Davion Mitchell was ninth to the Kings. And Zaire Williams was tenth overall to the New Orleans Pelicans. So a couple thoughts about the NBA draft. Uh, I want to break it down to draft classes, my top five draft classes. And, of course, these things are things that we just do for fun, right? Like, we don't know. We don't know. Um, it, it cracks me up. I was watching the coverage on ESPN, which, by the way, Kendrick Perkins, why? Why? Why do they keep putting that man on the TV to break down basketball? He's a nice guy. He can be pretty funny, but he is not good at his job. And I'm just a guy sitting in the shed at darn near midnight. Like, I'm not saying I would be better, but I would. And I love how on the NBA draft, uh, and they do this in every sport during the draft, but they give these comparisons, right? Like, who is this player reminds you of that's in the league? Who are they going to be like? And they never pick anybody that's possibly realistic. Like, I forget uh, who they said, the number one overall pick, Cade Cunningham. I forget who they compared him to. Um, but I remember, like, for example, they say things like, his ceiling is LeBron James, but his floor is Luka Doncic. And I'm like, no, it's not. And no, it's not. Like, this guy's never played a second of NBA basketball. He was really good at the college level. He was really good in high school. He has a lot of talent. But his floor is not Luka Doncic. His floor is Jimmer Fredette. His floor is Christian Leitner. His floor is being somebody that was really successful in college but never quite makes it or translates uh, to the NBA game. And that's just the truth of it because we have not seen these guys play. How come they never say, uh, this guy reminds me a lot of Sean Livingston? <laughs> This guy is another J.J. Redick. Like, this man right here is a Boris Diaw. This is going to be a very good NBA veteran, um, a bench player, or a, a starter on a, good, on a good team. They don't do that. Every single player in the first round reminds them of a Hall of Fame player. And it's ridiculous. It's insane. It's crazy. It's all, it's all hyperbole, and we don't do that around here. So anyway, let me give you my impressions on my top five draft classes. This is all projected. It's all for fun. We really won't know for four or five years um, who had the best draft, but this is what I saw and what I noticed in the NBA draft this year. The fifth best draft class in my estimation was the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Thunder picked Zaire Williams. He was a top 10 pick, which I think is a little bit of a stretch. That's just me. I was kind of surprised by that pick. Um, the analysts on TV seemed to like it, and they probably know more than me, um, but we'll see. I thought that was a bit of a stretch. Uh, they also got Herb Jones out of Alabama. He's going to be an NBA veteran for years. He's going to be a type of guy that just does the dirty work. The dirty work. He does the dirty work. He's going to do the dirty work, um, get the rebounds, block shots, play defense, all the stuff that, that will get you a job in the NBA and keep you a job. Um, they got Jared Butler, which I thought was a steal. 
Um, I thought as late as he he was picked, that was a steal. And I know he had some injury concerns and some other things, but if you watch Baylor basketball play this year, as good as Davion Mitchell was, um, Jared Butler was every bit as good too. And I think that he'll be able to be an NBA player. And they also got Greg Brown from Texas. So they had a, a big draft class. They had four guys that they picked. Uh, you know, Sam Presti has like a thousand first round draft picks. And uh, I'm surprised he even used four of them because he'd be trading them all the time. He'd be getting more all the time. He just want to collect all the first round draft picks. And I'm like, are you ever actually going to pick anybody? Are you ever actually going to use those picks? I mean, you can just stack them up for days and days and years and years, and it might not amount to a hill of beans if you don't actually pick somebody and they don't pan out. But I thought they had a good draft class. Zaire Williams, Herb Jones, Jared Butler, Greg Brown, I gave them number five overall. The number four ranked draft class to me on In the Shed with Wes because I am Wes and I am in the shed, the Atlanta Hawks. Y'all know that's one of my two teams, the Atlanta Hawks, so maybe I'm a little bit biased. Um, but I told you last offseason, I told you about the, the, the guys that they signed and how they would fit in really well and how they had depth, and uh, your boy was dead on. I told you they would finish fifth in the East, and they did. And uh, I picked them to go all the way in the playoffs to the finals, and they came very, 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 very close. Um, the Atlanta Hawks drafted Jalen Johnson, and they drafted him 20th overall. And really, they just took a flyer on a kid because of talent. Jalen Johnson has a lot of talent. If you remember, he was a big-time recruit. He went to Duke. He played 13 games, and then in the midst of the pandemic and everything that was going on, he left the team. And he got lambasted by a lot of people in the media, called him a quitter, labeled him all kinds of things. We don't know the situation. We know he has a lot of talent. We know he hasn't played a lot of ball outside of high school. So the Hawks took a flyer with the 20th overall pick. It could turn into something great if this guy pans out. Um, And then in the second round, in my estimation, they got a steal. The Hawks got a steal because they picked Sharif Cooper in the second round. Sharif Cooper, the point guard out of Auburn who was one and done, also didn't play very much college ball because of eligibility issues he only played eight or ten games at Auburn but was absolutely electric as a freshman averaging 20 points and eight assists a game Um, and honestly coming into the draft I thought maybe Atlanta would pick Sharif Cooper at 20th overall I thought that he would be a first round pick and Atlanta might take him at 20th they ended up getting him in the second round and I think that Sharif Cooper is going to be a great fit in Atlanta for one thing he's from the area which is pretty dope like that's pretty cool he's playing for his hometown team but also, like, he's the type of point guard that if he can develop a little bit, um, I think he'll be a, a great guard to spell Trey Young off the bench and to run with that second unit because he plays a very similar style in the sense that he can get out in the break, he can get to the cup, he can shoot the floater, he can get to the free throw line. He's small. Like, he's really small. Um, he's not a tall guy. He's not a big guy. And uh, he can't shoot, like, at all. He played for Auburn. That's my team. I watch Auburn. I watch Kentucky. Uh, He can't shoot the three at all, and his shot does not even look good form-wise. But he's quick with the ball. I mean, like, darn near John Wall speed with the ball, like I'm just going to tell you. So I think that he could really, if he blossoms, he could really work out in Atlanta as a number two guard behind Trey Young as the backup point guard. Uh, I think as a rookie, they can get him out on the court for 15, 18 minutes a game give him a chance to adjust to the NBA speed. Um, But I think that Atlanta had a good draft in Jalen Johnson and Sharif Cooper. I have them ranked fourth overall. 
the number three team. This is one I'm going to catch some heat for. Some people will disagree with me. That's okay. That is your prerogative. Number three ranked draft class, I have the Memphis Grizzlies. The Grizzlies picked Trey Murphy the third from Virginia, the sharpshooter, and B.J. Boston from Kentucky. Um, I like the pick of Trey Murphy. Uh, the Grizzlies need shooting. They need shooting. John Morant is not a shooter. They need somebody in the backcourt who is, and Trey Murphy the third fits that bill. And, hey, I, I really like the pick of B.J. Boston. I think that he is going to be a better NBA player than he was college. B.J. Boston was a big-time recruit out of high school, and uh, it just didn't work for him last year at Kentucky. He just had an off year. His shooting never really came through in high school. He was a great shooter. Didn't happen at Kentucky. Um, but, I mean, hey, nobody for Kentucky had a great year last year. Their team was terrible. They had a bad year. Um, all of the talent in the freshman class that they had just didn't mesh like it had in years prior. And so B.J. Boston, his his draft stock fell a little bit. And so I think the Grizzlies got a deal. I think they got a steal here. I think B.J. Boston can get in that system, can be developed. Uh, they have good player development there in Memphis. And uh, the Memphis front office has really done a great job over the last several years. They put a good team around their star point guard, and I think that this draft class is no different. The second-ranked draft class in my mind is the Golden State Warriors. Uh, the Warriors took Jonathan Kaminga 7th overall and Moses Moody 14th overall. And they got two guys that I think can get playing time uh, pretty early on for Golden State. There's a lot of talk leading up to the draft. Will Golden State keep those picks? Will they trade them? There's still the possibility now that they could trade one or both of those picks to get a veteran. Um, they definitely got to get a couple of, of veteran players that can play, that they can plug and play, and uh, put around Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond. Um, but the truth is, is that if Klay Thompson comes back healthy, they're going to have a good team. Because we've seen what Klay Thompson and Steph Curry and Draymond can do together. Uh, don't sleep on Golden State. Don't forget how good they were before Kevin Durant got there. And I know that they're older now. I know that Klay Thompson has been injured two years in a row. But Steph Curry was unconscious last year. That man was incredible. He was the most exciting player on the floor. And if they had more wins, he would have been the runaway MVP. So they've got Steph Curry if they have a healthy Klay Thompson um, they've got Andrew Wiggins, who's playing his best basketball of his career. They have a young guy like Wiseman. Um, they have Poole, who really came on as the backup point guard towards the end of the season there. And uh, Jonathan Kaminga is athletic enough that if he can pick up the system, he can come in and play some defense. He can catch the lob. He can get out on the fast break. And Moses Moody was an absolute steal at 14th. Moses Moody has top 10 talent. Um, there's so many guys in this in this draft that he didn't get picked in the top 10. Most people didn't have him going in the top 10, but he is top 10 talent, make no mistake. So I think the Warriors did not do what most people think they will, but I think that they might stand pat. I think that they might keep both of those rookies. They might actually work them into the rotation and look for a couple of veterans that they can sign at the minimum um, to come in and give them depth. I have their draft class ranked second overall. And the top-ranked overall draft class to me was very clear, the Detroit Pistons. The Detroit Pistons picked four guys, and uh, three of them are guys I think will contribute this year, and one of them has a chance. The Pistons picked Cade Cunningham with the number one overall pick, and um, all of the analysts on ESPN were talking about how this guy is going to be a bona fide star from day one. Um, I honestly don't know. I didn't watch very much Oklahoma State basketball last year. 
I remember turning on the tournament because I was excited to watch Cade Cunningham play in March. I'd heard what a great player he was, and they lost in the first round. So I didn't get to see very much of him. He definitely has talent. He's six foot eight. He has ball handling ability. Um, I think he'll be a good player. I think he was a good pick for Detroit. Make no mistake about it. Um, I just don't know a lot about him. I don't know a lot about him. And that might sound funny with him being the number one pick, but uh, when you play at Oklahoma State, uh, I don't get to see you too much. So I'm sure Cunningham will be a good player. They also got JT Thor from Auburn. Um, he was their second pick. He's a bit of a project, but he has the ability to, to develop into a very nice NBA player. He can shoot the three. He's long and athletic. Um, he's going to get stronger, get bigger. He's going to need some time to develop. I'm not sure that he'll play great from day one, uh, but he's certainly a player that can be a part of their plan for the future. They also got Isaiah Livers from Michigan and Luca Garza, who was the player of the year in college basketball from Iowa. And I think both of those guys can play this year. Isaiah Livers, uh, he's a veteran player out of Michigan. He shoots the three well. He plays good defense. Um, he's a fiery competitor. And so is Luca Garza. Luca Garza is not going to wow you with his athleticism, but the man knows how to play basketball. He can score in the paint. He has a silky smooth jump shot. Um, he's an underrated passer. Uh, I think he's going to be good enough on defense to stay on the court. And uh, the Detroit Pistons had the best overall draft class in my mind. Cade Cunningham, who's going to start from day one. JT Thor, who can develop into a very nice player. And Isaiah Livers and Luca Garza, who could be your um, eighth and ninth man off the bench um, day one. I think those guys can contribute this year to the Pistons team, to a young Pistons team that's looking to bounce back from uh, a pretty horrendous season. So that's my draft class rankings. I have the Pistons one overall, the Golden State Warriors two, the Memphis Grizzlies three, Atlanta Hawks fourth, and Oklahoma City Thunder fifth. So where did I go wrong? What did I get right? Where did I go wrong? Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Let me know what were your top five draft classes. Um, what picks did you see in this NBA draft that you thought were awesome? Which ones were you uncertain of? And who did your team pick and how do you feel about it? Get at us and let us know. I'd love to hear from you. One thing I also did for fun leading up to the NBA draft was uh, on Twitter, we've been doing these Twitter polls, a different poll each day. Sometimes they have to do with the show. Sometimes they're just things that are trending. And uh, being that the NBA draft was about to happen, um, I did three basketball NBA-related polls to see what you guys would think. And I got to tell you, I disagree with you guys on every single one of them. On every single one of these three polls, <laughs> I disagree with you guys. I disagree with my audience. It's true, I do. Um the first one was, so I, I kind of got into a little bit of a Twitter beef accidentally, accidentally, because uh, I saw this this account that I follow that um, is a Celtics fan account, but they post really good things, really good content about basketball, about the NBA, and so I followed them. And uh, they posted a picture of Jason Tatum, and they had a script that went along with it that said, best 23-year-old player in the world. And so... I kind of cheekily commented on it and said, only because Trey Young hasn't turned 23 yet. And oh boy, <laughs> oh boy did I learn how sensitive Boston fans can be because they were in my mentions, they were quote tweeting me, they were calling me names, they were in my DMs, and they were saying some pretty vile, 
some pretty vile things because I had had the audacity to assert that maybe Trey Young is a better basketball player than Jason Tatum. And so I put it out there on a poll. My first poll after this incident with Boston fans was who is better, Jason Tatum or Trey Young? And 63, 63% of you guys said that Jason Tatum is better than Trey Young. And maybe, maybe a big portion of those 63% were these Boston fans that had been harassing me. I do, I, I do not know. I use that word jokingly. It was mostly all good. Um, but I disagree. I disagree. I think that Trey Young is a better overall basketball player than Jason Tatum. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way to Jason Tatum, but it's just like this. What does Jason Tatum do at an elite level in the NBA? He scores. Jason Tatum, there's no question about it. Jason Tatum is an elite scorer, an elite offensive weapon in the NBA. The man can score the basketball. He can shoot. He can drive. He can score the basketball at a level unlike most people in the world. I give it to you. But what else does the man do? Is he an elite defender? No. Maybe he's improving on that end, but he's not an elite defender. Elite ball handler? Hmm, not really. He's okay. Is he an elite passer? No. What does he do? Shot blocker? What? What is, I mean, he's an okay rebounder. He's a decent rebounder. He's a scorer. Jason Tatum is an elite scorer, and as of right now, there's nothing else that he does at an elite level. But look at Trey Young. Trey Young is an elite scorer. Maybe not the same clip as Jason Tatum, but he is an elite scorer. He can shoot the three ball, and he shoots it from range. Um, he has the best floater in the NBA. He gets to the free throw line. The man can score the basketball. He dropped 50 in the playoffs. Trey Young is an elite scorer in the, in the league. But A, the man is an even better passer than he is a scorer. Don't forget that Trey Young was second in the league in assists this year. In the entire league, Trey Young was second in the league in assists. Trey Young is an elite scorer. He's an elite passer. He's an elite ball handler. I just think that overall, he is a better basketball player than Jason Tatum. Now, granted, Jason Tatum plays better defense than Trey Young. Trey Young gets in the passing lanes. He has quick hands. He gets steals. He is not a good defender. He's not a good defender at this point in his NBA career. He may never be. Jason Tatum is a better defensive player than Trey Young. But he's not a better basketball player. He doesn't pass the ball like Trey does. He has, doesn't have the court vision that Trey has. He doesn't have the ball handling skills that Trey has. I don't know. I'm with the 37%. I know I'm a Hawks fan, but I think that Trey, I, I do. I think that Trey Young is a better basketball player than Jason Tatum overall. And if you disagree, the question I ask you is, what is Jason Tatum elite at other than scoring? If I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, let me know. Don't slide into my DMs with some hateful things to say. But let me know. Get at me on Twitter. Email the show at In the Shed with West. Let me know. So after that poll uh, that did not go the way I hoped, I put another poll out that related to Jason Tatum. And I just said, which of the following best describes Jason Tatum? And the options were top 10 NBA player, elite offensive player, or better than Trey Young and Devin Booker. 
24% of you guys said that Jason Tatum was better than Trey Young and Devin Booker. 38% of you guys said that Jason Tatum is best described as an elite offensive player. And 38% of you said that Jason Tatum is a top 10 NBA player. And I disagree. I disagree. I think the 38% of you that said he is an elite offensive player, I think that you had it right. But the 38% of you that said Jason Tatum is a top 10 NBA player, what in the world are you watching? What are you looking at? I'm not I'm not trying to be combative with you, my audience. I appreciate you listening to the show, but I'm just saying. Giannis, Steph Curry, LeBron, AD, Dame Lillard, Harden, KD, Kyrie, Clay, Djokovic, Luka, Kawhi, Embiid, Paul George. How many people did I how many did I just name? That's that's players off the top of my head with no preparation. How many that what was that like 12, 13 players right there that, that are better? unquestionably that 90% of people would say are better basketball players than Jason Tatum. And then there's guys that are arguable. There's guys that people, some people would say are better, some people might not think are better, like Trey, like Chris Paul, like Devin Booker, Jimmy Butler, Russell Westbrook, Bradley Beal, Spider Mitchell, Jamal Murray. Shoot, some people are even saying that Jalen Brown is a better basketball player than Jason Tatum. I don't know that I agree with them, but some people would argue that. So top 10 player, there's just there's just no way. I think at best, at best, Jason Tatum is in the top 25. And I would have to really think hard about that. I'm not sure that I have him in the top 25. I'd have to think hard about that. Celtics fans are going to be in my mentions again, I know. And it's okay. I love you, Celtics fans. I don't have anything against Jason Tatum. I think he's a great player. He's a lot of fun to watch. You're lucky to have him. But he's not better than Trey Young. And he's not a top 10 NBA player. The last poll that I did was in relation to the Golden State Warriors because as we've already talked about coming into the draft, a lot of people were expecting the Warriors to make a draft night trade and get rid of one or both of their picks along with possibly James Wiseman or Andrew Wiggins to bolster their team and get some veteran depth. Uh, They did not make a trade as of yet. They still have options on the table. But I put a poll out to you guys that said which player would make the best addition to the Warriors with the options of Bradley Beal, Pascal Siakam, Damian Lillard, and Miles Turner. And I believe that you gave me the wrong answer. And maybe not. After all, my prediction for the NBA Championship Series was incorrect, so maybe you know more than I do my tools. But I believe, I believe you gave me the wrong answer. Because the runaway winner of the poll with 47% of the vote was Bradley Beal. Second was Pascal Siakam at 24%. Damian Lillard was at 21%. And Miles Turner was at 8%. And I gotta be honest with you. If given the option of adding one of those four guys to the the Warriors roster, I think the one that helps the team the most, that fits the best, that makes the most sense is actually Miles Turner. Miles Turner, the young big man for Indiana, who probably could be gotten for one of those two picks, one of those two first round picks, if not both of them, and James Wiseman. 
you could keep Andrew Wiggins. You could you could swap and wind up having Miles Turner as your starting center, a guy that can shoot the basketball, that can move without the ball, that sets a good screen, that runs the court, that's a good rim runner, that's good enough on defense. I really feel like he would fit the Warriors system pretty well. And if you're looking at the Warriors roster, what they really need are some bigs. Um, James Wiseman really struggled to learn to play with Steph Curry and Draymond Green last year. And I hope this offseason, I hope he's watching a lot of film. I hope he's working on his game. I hope he's spending time with those guys. Because if he can figure out how to play with them, he's got a load of talent. He can be good on offense and defense. He's worth hanging on to. But if they had gotten rid of him, and they did so to bring on Miles Turner, they could get a lot better very quickly. I love Kavon Looney, but he's a backup center. He plays very well in that system because he knows that system. He knows how to play with Steph. Um, he's tough as nails, but they need help at the center position. They really got blasted on the boards. Um, Miles Turner would be a good fit for that system. I'm not sure about a backcourt of, of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Bradley Beal. That's a small lineup. Same thing with Dame Lillard, even smaller. I'm not sure how you defend people. Um, I'm not sure how, how well those guys do with ball movement issues. Pascal Siakam would be a pretty good fit, but I think that of the of those options listed, I feel like the correct answer was Miles Turner, and only 8% of you agreed with me. Um, so that's how my polls went. I put some polls out to you guys, and you guys disagree with every single one of my opinions. But that's okay. That's why we're friends. That's why we're in the shed. That's why we're chopping it up so we can learn from each other, so we can discuss things. We don't have to be hateful. We don't have to be hyperbolic. We can just talk NBA basketball. Um, on next week's show and the week after, we're going to talk a lot of college football, too, as we get ready for the college football season. Uh, we're going to have an in, in the Shed with West top 25 um, preseason preview. Um, next week on the show, we're going to talk a lot of Oklahoma and Texas to the SEC, uh, crazy developments that are happening there that are going to shake up the college football landscape. Um, but right now it's NBA because we just got through with the NBA playoffs we just got through with the nba draft um we're jumping into free agency so this week nba next week we'll do a lot of college football um if there's a story that you want us to cover something that you would like to hear us talk more about get at us and let us know email the show at in the shed with wes at gmail.com or find us on twitter at in the shed four and we got to talk more ufc we got to talk more ufc just before coming out here to record this show uh i watched saturday night fights and i saw um Sean Strickland defeat Uriah Hall, and I was looking forward to that fight, and I really thought that Uriah Hall would win. Uh, he was the higher-ranked fighter coming into the fight, and even though Sean Strickland was the was the favorite um, by a small margin, at least as far as the betters are concerned, um, the odds makers, I really expected Uriah Hall to win that fight, and Sean Strickland absolutely dominated him. I mean, it, it really wasn't close. There was no knockout. It went the full five rounds, but Sean Strickland won every single round. And uh, so we we got to talk more UFC. I'm I'm getting into it more and more. I'm getting to know these fighters. I really enjoy it. And so we'll talk more UFC. We'll talk college football. Um, we'll talk NFL as we get closer to the season. Uh, I love the NBA. Love talking NBA with you. But we're going to cover all sports um, on in the shed with Wes, except for baseball. We just we we're not going to go there, shouty. Um, so yeah, we just I I can't do it. Atlanta Braves fan in recovery and I just I won't I won't go there yeah that's all for the world of sports let's switch to this the world of the paranormal 
and our first story takes us to the great state of Texas. Acid-squirting land lobster from hell invades Texas. Yeah. Meet the vinegaroon, an adorable little creature that spits an acidic substance from its tail as a defense mechanism. Um, it's not adorable. I'm, I'm going to stop the article right there, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm looking at the picture right now. The vinegaroon is not adorable, unless you just find things adorable simply because they're small, which I know some people do, and I do not understand that rationale. Uh, the vinegaroon is terrifying. These have recently been spotted in West Texas near Big Bend Park. The Mastigoproctus giganticus arthropod, also known by its more common name of vinegaroon, has been spotted by officials at Big Bend National Park, and the image of the pincher-equipped acid-shooting resident was enough for Houston Chronicle reporter Abigail Rosenthal to refer to it as a land lobster from hell. Pretty accurate description, I'm just saying. Google Google the vinegaroon, V-I-N-E-G-A-R-O-O-N, and you will see why I say that is a pretty accurate description. Fans of the Big Bend National Park's Facebook page went wild with comments about their discovery. I'm going to have nightmares from this photo, one fan commented. That's enough internet for today. Vine grooms are coming out of their burrows looking for food and love thanks to summer rains, according to the park service. They grow to around three inches long and are generally harmless unless they're threatened. Aren't we all? Aren't we all generally harmless until we are threatened? That just describes literally every animal. Well, not every, almost every animal. When they get annoyed, they're capable of shooting acidic acid, vinegar, from their whips to discourage intruders and overly curious fans of bugs, hence their name. Oh, man, their name must be a vinegaroon. I've been saying vinegaroon. Apparently, it is vinegaroon, because the thing that they shoot is like vinegar. Hmm, vinegaroon. Okay, duly noted. I apologize, vinegaroon. Please do not harm me. Fortunately for us, the spray is non-poisonous, according to Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. So, acid-squirting land lobster invading Texas. The vinegaroon. I did not know that such a thing existed. I'm looking at the picture now, and I assure you that it is creepy. And they're in Texas, which is far away from Alabama, and I feel good about that. From Big Bend Park in Texas, we go to the end of all things for our next story. Yeah. New Zealand rated best place to survive global societal collapse. In case you were wondering or needed a plan. New Zealand, Iceland, the UK, Tasmania, and Ireland are the places best suited to survive a global collapse of society, according to a recent study. The researchers said that human civilization was in a perilous state due to the highly interconnected and energy-intensive society that had developed and the environmental damage that this had caused. A collapse could arise from shocks, such as a severe financial crisis, the impacts of the climate crisis, destruction of nature, an even worse pandemic than COVID-19, or a combination of these, the scientists said. And that is scary. Why do you have to scare us with your science all the time? Why can't scientists ever bring forth good news to us? Good news, we have discovered, no, it's always, here are six ways that you can die. 
and that we are destroying the planet. Be afraid. To assess which nations would be most resilient to such a collapse, countries were ranked according to their ability to grow food for their population, protect their borders from unwanted mass migration, and maintain an electrical grid and some manufacturing ability. Oh, now I know why America is not on that list. <laughs> we can't do any of those things. We have so few farmers. We're not good at growing food. Uh, we do not protect. We do not protect. We can't protect our borders and maintain an electrical electrical grid. I I point you toward Texas um, for Exhibit A, and we don't manufacture almost anything anymore. So we are up a creek, so to speak. Islands in temperate regions and mostly with low population densities came out on top. The researchers said that their study highlighted the factors that nations must improve to increase resilience. They said that a globalized society that prized economic efficiency damaged resilience and that spare capacity needed to exist in food and other vital sectors. Billionaires have been reported to be buying land for bunkers in New Zealand in preparation for an apocalypse. Word? All these billionaires buying land in New Zealand in preparation for an apocalypse. That is that is not good news for us. <laughs> I will tell you, um, it's room for probably eight or ten of us comfortably in my shed. It is a nice shed. Uh, it has been through two hurricanes last year, and it, it withstood both of them. It is not even, like, bolted down, and it's got two lofts, not just one, but two lofts, um, it, it it gets hot, uh, but it stays warm in the winter. And um, if you need a place to be when things hit the fan, uh, if you can't afford a ticket to New Zealand, you just come to Alabama, and uh, we will live. We will live in the shed. Um, my wife and and I and two children and a couple cats and a dog and forty five to sixty of my closest friends. We'll figure it out. We can uh, we can make it work. We can make it work. We weren't surprised New Zealand was on our list, said Professor Alan Jones at the Global Sustainability Institute at Anglia Ruskin University in the UK. Jones added, we chose that you had to be able to protect borders and places had to be temperate. So with hindsight, it's quite obvious that large islands with complex societies on them already make up the list. We were quite surprised the UK came out so strongly. It's densely populated, has traditionally outsourced manufacturing, hasn't been the quickest to develop renewable technology, and only produces 50% of its own food at the moment, but it has the potential to withstand shock. The study, published in the journal Sustainability, said, The globe-spanning, energy-intensive industrial civilization that characterizes the modern era represents an anomalous situation when it is considered against the majority of human history. The study also said that due to environmental destruction, limited resources, and population growth, the academic literature paints a picture of human civilization that is in a perilous state with large and growing risks developing in multiple spheres of the human endeavor. More good news. Places that did not suffer the most egregious effects of societal collapses and are therefore able to maintain significant populations have been described as collapsed lifeboats, the study said. New Zealand was found to have the greatest potential to survive relatively unscathed due to its geothermal and hydroelectric energy, abundant agricultural land, and low human population density. Jones said that major global food losses, a financial crisis, and a pandemic had all happened in recent years, and we've been lucky that things haven't all happened at the same time. There's no real reason why they can't all happen in the same year. 
He added, as you start to see these events happening, I get more worried, but I also hope that we can learn more quickly than we have in the past that resilience is important. With everyone talking about building back better from the pandemic, if we don't lose that momentum, I might be more optimistic than I have been in the past. He said the coronavirus pandemic had shown that governments could act quickly when necessary. It's interesting how quickly we can close borders and how quickly governments can make decisions to change things. But he also added, This drive for just-in-time, ever-more-efficient economies isn't the thing you want to do for resilience. We need to build in some slack in the system so that if there is a shock, you have the ability to respond because you've, you've got spare capacity. We need to start thinking about resilience much more in global planning, but obviously the ideal thing is that a quick collapse doesn't happen. Well, isn't that just depressing? (laughs) That article didn't even mention the United States. And that is telling. Like, I would like to read that study and see where we rank, and I guess that it is not very high. Because we do not do any of the things on that list. And it's pretty terrifying. And I don't know if so far on this episode it's all been bad news. (laughs) I hope it's been informative and fun and not depressing for you because that article was depressing. I'm going to have to make sure on the next show that we get some good news up in here in the shed. I like to laugh with you guys. I like for you to know what's happening in the world. But A, we need some good news too, Shadi, And we're going to make sure we get it on In the Shed. So apparently if everything hits the fan, find a way to get to New Zealand. And if you can't, We here for you, my babies. Come on down to Alabama. Bring some batteries for a fan and a sleeping bag. But I got you. From the end of all things, we go to the icy waters of Antarctica for our next story. Russian scientist claims that his team battled a creature under Antarctic ice. Russian scientists have made a new borehole into Lake Vostok, the prehistoric Antarctic water mass, which has been sealed for millions of years, three years after a previous mission was prematurely ended by an accident resulting in sample contamination. Now a defecting Russian scientist had surfaced with a mind-bending account of what really occurred when he and his colleagues went missing for five days in a mysterious lake 12,366 feet beneath the Antarctic ice. Dr. Anton Padalka told authorities in Switzerland that the researchers discovered a bizarre and deadly life form dubbed Organism 46b, a highly intelligent octopus-like creature that claimed the lives of three of his team members. Lake Vostok is the largest of Antarctica's almost 400 known subglacial lakes. Lake Vostok is located in the southern pole of cold beneath Russia's Vostok Station under the surface of the central East Antarctic ice sheet, which is at 3,488 meters above sea level. The surface of the freshwater lake is approximately 4,000 meters, that's 13,000 feet, under the surface of the ice, which places it at approximately 1,600 feet below sea level. First of all, I do not know why anyone even for the sake of science, would find it necessary or remotely a good idea to explore a lake that is under ice. Like, first of all, Antarctica is already cold enough. You're fixing to go underneath the ice, that's a no for me, dog. 
That's a big no for me. That's a hard pass. But then to explore this lake that's like 12,000 feet under the ice, that takes some guts and a whole lot of stupidity. (laughs) And these men, uh, this team, I don't know if it was just men. Maybe there were some women, but it's from Russia, so probably not just men. This team went missing for five days. And then this Russian scientist pops up with this story about this life form. There was an intelligent octopus-like creature that they went to battle with 12,000 feet underneath the ice in this lake that has not been exposed to air for millions of years, allegedly. And that it took three members of his crew out. I don't know. How long is it going to be until we find out that this crew just took a wrong turn and got trapped on underneath the ice and engaged in some cannibalism? Because I have a feeling that something like that happened. Like maybe they were underneath the ice and they weren't getting uh, getting along very well. Maybe they couldn't agree about which DVDs to watch. Somebody wanted Friends. Somebody else wanted Seinfeld. They got into a fist fight. Three guys wind up dead. They make up a story about an octopus. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What is more believable, that something went terribly wrong and uh, they lost three of their their teammates? Or that there's this giant life force down there that is undiscovered that we don't know about? But A, if it was going to exist somewhere in a subglacial lake, this is a movie. This is a movie. And if it's real, it's terrifying. If it's real, it's terrifying. But I have a feeling... Um, At some point, this man will change his story. At some point, we will find out what happened for real. And uh, I don't know about the rest of his team, but we just heard from this one guy. Did anybody else make it out? Are there other people out there? What, What else are they saying? I haven't heard. I haven't been able to find anything else about this story except from this one guy's point of view. Um, If you have, let me know. Email the show. Let me know what really happened. Let me know what you think. Um, I don't know. It'd be pretty neat if there's this giant squid that lives down there that we're not aware of. Um, If there's this creature that is out here doing the Lord's work and going to battle with Russian scientists, I I don't know. It'd be pretty dope. But I think probably, probably not. I think probably something happened this man doesn't want to disclose. That he's afraid might get him in a little bit of trouble or have some people looking at him sideways. Maybe somebody named Vladimir. And I think that he probably made up a story about an octopus. I don't know. We may never know. But then again, we might. For our last story of the week, we go to beautiful Christian County, Kentucky, Hopkinsville Goblins case at the Sutton Farmhouse. Among all of the strange stories of UFOs, one comes not with conspiracy theories, but with a wealth of witnesses by comparison and unusual consistency. That is the case of the Hopkinsville Goblins. There was no wreck supposedly covered up by the government. There was no supposed abduction that relies on the testimony of a single witness. It was just a family, their friends, a farmhouse in the country, and a seeming attack of unknown origin. The event took place in the summer of 1955 at the Sutton family's farmhouse. It was and still is located in Christian County, Kentucky, near the town of Hopkinsville. It occurred over the space of one evening and into the following morning. While there were alleged UFO sightings and strange sounds in the area, 
The Hopkinsville goblins appeared only at the Sutton farmhouse and only on that one strange night. At the time of the occurrence, there were a total of 11 people in the house. Seven of those people were adults. The Suttons were there and had another family staying with them for an extended period of time. They all settled in for the evening and going about regular household activities when one of the men said that he saw something strange in the sky. Nothing came of it until a creature peeked into the window of the house. The families panicked and chaos ensued. Witnesses said the creature was about three feet tall with pointy ears, metallic skin, and clawed hands. It had very skinny limbs, particularly the legs. The men went outside to investigate and saw one in a tree and another on the roof of the house. They shot at them, but the creatures survived their rifle and shotgun blasts, even though they were from relatively close range. Some sources say the men claimed to hear a metallic rattling noise whenever they hit one of the creatures. The one in the tree reportedly floated to the ground. With the families inside the house, the goblins continued making random appearances at the window. There was also scratching and clawing heard on the roof. Finally, the families could take no more, and they went to the police. Several officers visited the house that night. They found evidence of the men's struggle, reportedly including a broken window after one of the men had fired his gun through it. The officers may also have heard the strange noises associated with what one of the men had seen in the sky. A state trooper far removed from the situation had reported hearing the same noises around 11 p.m. that night. The police left after finding nothing unusual at the Sutton farmhouse. The witnesses in the home later stated that the creatures came back and stayed there until roughly 5 a.m. The U.S. Air Force was asked to investigate. They did not find enough evidence to come to a conclusion about the so-called goblins. The case is still considered unexplained, although some studies claim the goblins were just great horned owls. Of course, some have tried to explain the Hopkinsville Goblins case away as a hoax, and it might have been. However, if it was, it was an unusual hoax, to say the least. Most of the witnesses remained consistent in their stories. They never sought publicity, though they did start trying to charge people to come on their property, ostensibly to discourage the trespassers who were overtaking them. Other explanations include escaped monkeys, which is absurdly out of proportion with the description given, and horned owls, which are also quite far from the mark. So what really happened that night in Hopkinsville, Kentucky? We may never know. So if you follow um, paranormal news, if you are into UFOs, you've probably heard this story before, and this has always been one of my favorite incidents, um, because it is so unlike a lot of these other reports that we get. It's not one person, it's not a married couple on a dark road at night. It's 11 people, and 7 of them are adults. And they all claim to have heard and seen the same things. And their stories never changed. And there was some level of physical evidence that something occurred. They had police come out and investigate, and even one of the officers said that he believed their story. They had the Air Force on the grounds. And my deductive reasoning tells me that if the Air Force comes out to actually investigate, that there is something of interest to them. Um, you call up the Air Force and just tell them that you saw a UFO on your property, they're not going to show up. And even though this was at the height of Air Force investigation, Project Blue Book, all these types of things that were going on at the time, 
the Air Force came out and investigated. And they did not find any way or anything to confirm any type of story matching what the people claimed. But they weren't able to debunk it either. And this is an interesting situation. The whole thing starts because one of the house guests goes out to the well to get some water and sees something in the sky that doesn't make sense to him. Something that he later would describe as a UFO. Then you hear all of these noises, and as they investigate, they see these creatures, multiple creatures, that then accost the house. They pop up in the windows. They try to attack. They aggravate. They seem menacing and threatening to these families. I mean, these people were were legitimately terrified. And when these creatures had receded, they get in their car and they drive straight to the police station. The cops come out and investigate. And uh, on record, these police say they believe that, if nothing else, these people believe that what they say happened actually did because they were petrified. They never changed their story. Not one of those 11 people ever came out, to my knowledge, at any point after that and said, actually, it was a hoax. Actually, we made it up. Actually, maybe it didn't happen. Maybe it wasn't quite what we said. Nobody. Not one out of 11. And to say that this was some horned owls, yeah, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying what you're selling. I'm not picking up what you're laying down. Because horned owls aren't going to be coming at your house so aggressively. Not going to be popping up in your window and on your roof and trying to get to you. Notwithstanding the blast of a shotgun or a rifle. Not making the noises that were described or putting the fear into the family dog. Because that's another part of the story that wasn't in the article. When they heard these noises, they did what a lot of us would do. They let their family dog out the front door. The dog ran under the porch and hid and didn't come out until the whole thing was over the next morning after the Air Force got done investigating. It's a weird story. Like, I don't know what to make of it. I, I don't think that it was escaped monkeys. Uh, it possibly could be a very well-orchestrated hoax, but um, these people didn't profit off of it. In fact, they got so uh, worked up and annoyed and overwhelmed by people wanting to visit their property and do research all the time, they actually ended up selling the farm, um, selling their very home. So I, I don't know that they necessarily profited a whole lot from this uh, situation. It seemed to have caused a lot of heartache, um, and a lot of strife and a lot of uh, aggravation that if something hadn't happened, they would have just said, okay, look, we made up the whole thing. Leave us alone. And honestly, even if it had really happened, I might have said that anyway just to get people to leave me alone and stay off my property. I'm just like that. Get off my lawn. I'm 31 years old, but sometimes I'm 65 years old. Get off my lawn. Um, so I, I don't really know what to make of this story. I don't know what I believe about it. I don't know what happened. If I had to guess, I would say that they saw something, that they were afraid of something. Is it possible they just got into some moonshine and they told stories, that they saw something in the sky, that they were confused, that they were halluc- I mean, all things, are po- all those are possibilities, sure. But if I had to guess, I would say that they saw something. And whatever it was really frightened them. Really frightened them. This has always been one of my favorite UFO type incidents, extraterrestrial paranormal type incidents. It's still unexplained. It's still unsolved. 66 years later, we don't have an idea of what happened. And the fact that it happened outside of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, makes it that much better of a story. I've dealt with some people who are absolutely positive in their minds that this is a hoax and they have ideas of how to explain it away. I'm not so sure. 
I've heard people who are sold on the owl theory and think that this was some owls. Uh, I'm not so sure. I'm not saying it was aliens. I'm not saying it was extraterrestrial beings. I do not know what happened in Hopkinsville, Kentucky in the summer of 1955. I'm just saying that it's something that's fun to think about. It's something that I find interesting. And it's something that I thought worthy of sharing with you in this segment of our show. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? What, what explanation do you give for the Hopkinsville goblins? Did these folks really see aliens outside of Hopkinsville, Kentucky? Was it horned owls? Was it escaped monkeys? Was it all a hoax and something that they made up? They just shot weapons through their windows. They put scratch marks on the door. They frightened their dog. What really went on there? I'd love to hear from you. Email the show at intheshepwithwest at gmail.com and let us know what you think. It's a truly bizarre story that still has no explanation to this day. And that's how we're going to end the show. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 20. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at intheshed4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk some sports, and try to answer the question of, are dinosaurs really extinct? This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it!